Please turn your Bibles with me to the book of Acts. We return to Acts for the last Sunday of Eastertide, and we will be studying the 16th chapter, starting with the 16th verse, and we will read that in a few minutes, Acts 16, 16. Truth is stranger than fiction, which is why sometimes we find ourselves uttering the following phrases. You cannot make up what I am about to tell you. You aren't going to believe what happened to me. Are you sitting down? You will not understand the kind of day I've had. Now, all of us have said these words to a friend or to a spouse. All of us have had these words said back to us. They are the precursor to a good tale. And the listener sits on the edge of their seat knowing the end is going to be something that they can't guess or imagine and maybe don't even want to hear. This is one of the reasons why, before I even get out of bed each day, I pray for what lies ahead. It's not because I'm super spiritual. It's because years ago I realized that it was necessary to have this practice. One of the reasons why is because my mind starts going the second I wake up about what I have to do. So inviting God, I figured out, into the conversation was a good idea. Have thine own way, Lord. Second, I realized that praying over my day and the encounters that I know I'm going to have, the things that I know I have scheduled, allow me to talk to the Lord in a way that lessens my anxiety. Because I found myself getting to the middle of my day and thinking, Holy moly, what do I do now? I know when I get there that I've already prayed over it. It reminds me that also that my agenda needs to line up with his. So it reminds me to listen, that he's in charge, that he goes before me preparing what's going to happen. I don't have any idea about what's going to occur or the ways I'm going to be called on to do something that he will empower me to do. So talking to the one who knows those things before I get there is a good idea. Essentially praying about my day enables me to rest. Before my hit, my feet hit the floor, inviting the Holy Spirit into all he wants me to know and do about the day. Then the conversation, of course, continues as the day unfolds. And a lot of days, of course, go along how we expect. Maybe with a few bumps and surprises. But some days are extraordinary in their breadth and scope. And we get to the end of it, and we talk to our friends or our spouse, and we go, You not believe what happened to me today. But once we're on the path, In the middle of our day, we can't go back. Sometimes we might want to go back and put the covers over our head and pretend like something didn't happen, but we have to live out what is in front of us. And we have to be listening to who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to proceed. And in the end, if we've listened well and if we've submitted our will to the Lord, we might find no matter how things were bad, how things bad got, that we ended up exactly where the Lord wanted us to be. We just couldn't have predicted it. The story that we read today seems to me to be one of those days. And as we study it, I think that we can be certain that Paul and Silas have prayed beforehand. Because how they respond to the encounter seems based on trust in God. Like they are being led by the Spirit. There's not another explanation. This story is so compelling, honestly, it almost preaches itself. I pretty much don't even need to be here. 
there are so many different lessons that you could take from it, and I want you to think about that, that, that I might not even discuss today. Paul and his companions have three encounters with other people in the course of their day that build on one another and show a dependence on God that is inspiring, I think, and necessary for us to think about what God wants to accomplish in our lives. So let us read together Acts 16, starting with verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself! We are all here! The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Oh, Father, we thank you for these amazing stories. God, that give us hope and teach our hearts. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come now and give us what we need uniquely in our lives right now as we follow you. Amen. In this portion of Acts, the gospel has reached Europe for the first time. Paul had wanted to go into Asia Minor, but the Lord blocked his way. In a vision, the apostles were directed to go to Macedonia, invited actually by a man who said, please come to Macedonia, which is today mostly Greece. They've already had their first convert, a woman named Lydia, who was a seller of purple cloth, and she has invited them into her home. We read here that Luke inserts himself into the story, not just as a reporter, but as someone who was there, giving eyewitness testimony. So let's look at the three events of their day in order to get a glimpse into how God led them and how they trusted him. The first part of their day starts out well enough, they're headed to pray. 
But on the way, they meet a girl who has been following them for many days. She is a slave who is being used by her owners to make money telling the future um, to those who pay her for such information. She's possessed by a spirit, and the spirit is the one who does the work. Fortune teller here literally means python, because there was a snake that guarded the oracle at Delphi, and a snake is the symbol of those who practice divination. She was of use to her masters, not because of anything she herself offered, but because of the evil spirit in her. The girl keeps shouting wherever they go. These men are servants of the Most High. They're going to tell you how to be saved. When we think of this, we need to remember not to picture the girl, not the outside, but remember the demon inside of her. Evil knows the truth. And in this case, causes, uses it to cause disruption and chaos. So those who hear it might be put off by it. So that those who are listening to Paul might associate his message of God's goodness and truth and salvation with fortune telling and snakes and the rest of the gods being worshipped in the area. The truth that she is uttering has nothing to do with honoring God or furthering his cause. Notice what Paul does not do. He does not say, oh, look, she knows why we're here. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that cool? Let's go ask her what our future will hold. He understands something that sometimes we do not, that this is dangerous ground and it is not to be engaged. He doesn't play around with it saying, well, all truth is God's truth. And God will somehow honor this. Sometimes we think that the occult world is harmless. And psychics and card readers are consulted kind of like a game. Even reading our horoscope can lead us to wade into deeper waters as we seek answers about who we are or what might happen to us in the future. We have to remember that there is one God and his spirit is powerful. And he loves us and he will show us what we need to know for our lives in his time and in his way. Either things are from God or they are from another source. And that other source is evil. And evil does not have our best at heart. Dabbling in the occult world has to be avoided, prayed against, and called out in the name of Jesus like Paul does here. Evil is in our lives. It is where we go every day. But God will protect us because fighting in the spiritual realm belongs to him. We have to be aware of evil. We have to be aware of those things. But we don't seek it out. The spiritual realm that we belong to with Jesus is in constant battle with the evil forces around us in ways that we don't even are, aren't even aware of or see. But Jesus has given us the victory. But evil's still going to try and stop us and trip us up, discourage us, and make us quit. The demon here is trying to do that, trying to thwart the cause of Christ, both in the heart of the disciples and in the heart of those people who are listening. It catches our attention that Paul waits many days to call out the Spirit. This is the way we know he is being led by God. Allow that demon to follow them for days? That is not humanly possible. I would last 15 minutes with that girl following me around tops. There is no way. 
Because what is human is to fight, to try and make it go away. What is human is to cover our ears, to go someplace different. All of the things that the demon is hoping for. No, this is a response fueled by relationship with Jesus. And I would argue that this response is possible because Paul and Silas prayed every day before they went out. They probably even talked about, what are we going to do about the girl today? Do you think maybe God would tell us to do something about her today? Paul's annoyed with her. He is so sick of her. Of course he is. And yet the Lord had them wait. He gave them, he gave them strength and wisdom. Maybe he gave them the ability to not even hear her anymore. The, Paul, the Lord has Paul wait for a particular moment, whatever that is. And then he rebukes the evil out of her. How do you face evil? We can't ignore it. We have to know it's there. We have to pray for discernment. We have to trust that God is working and God is fighting the battle. Fight evil by praying over your day. Talking to God. Seeking his protection for you. He will help you withstand the enemy and give you the power to overcome. The next thing that happens is actually pretty rough. Paul calls out the demon and the girl, which makes her owners quite angry. They might have been gleefully watching her follow around these guys for days. But when the Lord intervenes, these people, who themselves are evil to the core and unjust, cry, Foul! Uh Uh-uh! Sorry! They bring Paul and Silas before the authorities. Not for being deprived of their income, which would have been honest. Rather, they play the race card. And they pit the Roman magistrates, who don't want any uprisings at all, against those who are causing problems by calling them Jews. They're not in trouble for spreading the gospel. They're not in trouble for being missionaries and Christians. These Jews are making trouble. They're causing an uproar in the crowd. And the crowd joins in the fray. Yeah, they're awful. And then they're beaten and stripped and flogged and thrown into prison. And not just a regular prison cell, but one deep inside for maximum security with their feet in stocks. Let's stop for a second and just think about how we feel when we're blamed for something we didn't do. Did you leave the cap off the toothpaste? We get all mad. No, it wasn't me. The stupid stuff that we get blamed for every day. Think about if, think about something that kind of real that happened in your life, maybe that you were blamed for, like at work or in your family or something like that, that really had an impact on your life that was very hard. And envision that incident quickly getting spread to where you get convicted without a trial in the street and beaten by those around you who don't even know you, but don't like you because of your ethnicity or what you represent and have you thrown in jail. For most of us sitting here, that's surreal to even imagine. But when we allow these words to sink in, what Luke is saying is horrendous. We shouldn't gloss over these words to get to the end of the story. We shouldn't gloss over these words and minimize the hardness of their treatment because it's too difficult for us to think about or to take in. In the ancient world, those without power who were a minority were often convicted of meaningless behavior just to shut them up, just to get them out of the way. 
They were judged on trumped-up charges before they even could say a word of defense. And when we read these words, we have to stop and lament the fact that these things still happen today in all corners of our world and in our nation. There are people who are convicted for no good reason at all except for the color of their skin or the fact that they made someone angry who was in power over them. So how do we become people then who work for justice? We listen to the reality of people whose skin color is different than ours. We familiarize ourselves with different cultures, weighing them on equal par with our own. We read the hard stories. We let them impact our heart and our mind, including the things happening today of the oppressed and the persecuted. We make choices to treat everyone with kindness, even when it makes us uncomfortable. We decide to stand up, unlike the people in this story, and question when injustice is happening, when the powerless, like Carrie said today, don't have a voice, and we do. We acknowledge that everyone is as loved by God as we are, and we make choices in those we vote for in our city and in our state and in our nation so that those people will continue to move forward respecting all people to ensure that justice and liberty do mean for every person. The church has to lead the way. We who have the spirit of God, we have to lead the way. Who else is going to do it? God, God's people. The passage also reminds us that God sends us sometimes into harsh realities He spared their lives in this case, but allowed them to be humiliated and badly hurt for the gospel. Paul could have claimed his Roman citizenship right away, but like Jesus, he remained silent. He allowed those things to happen. That is our clue that Paul is being led by the Spirit again. This is not something we in our flesh would react kindly to. We would protest. We would blame the nasty owners of the slave girl. We would fight back. We would yell obscene things. We would demand our rights. But the Spirit of God tells them to take the punishment so the purposes of God could be furthered. Sometimes we are indignant and suspicious when God allows terrible things to happen to us. Sometimes we question Him and we question His character, forgetting the way to the cross is through suffering. Jesus redeemed us and our sinful lives, but he doesn't always release us from painful situations, from unjust situations. What we do have always in these times is the God who suffers with us, Emmanuel, who helps us in ways we most need when we are persecuted for any reason. How do you deal with the injustice of our world when it is aimed at you or those who truly have no voice? Let us continue to grapple with these complex issues, to talk about them, to pray about them, to ask that the Lord would put us in the right places so that truth and grace of the cross might be lived out and might be understood in new ways. The last part of the day is where things begin to turn around. Paul and Silas are in jail. We see them kind of tied to a wall. Their feet are shackled. They're bruised. They're bleeding. They're humiliated. You can't move much when you're shackled to the wall. 
The jailer has done what he has been told to do. It's not evident how much he has seen or how much he has knows about their situation. How do we know they're being led by the Spirit here? Ah, uh, they're singing. Who does that? People who are trusting the Savior, who know that He is going to work out a way for them. As regular humans, we'd be crying for our mama. We'd be complaining loudly to all who would hear, yelling to the jailer, let us out, talking to other prisoners to see if there's a way to get out of here. We'd be despairing and fearful. Nope, they're singing. Not just one of them, but both of them. And the other prisoners are listening in. The jailer who's getting some peace for the night falls asleep. And when the earthquake happens and the prison doors fly open, he awakes with a start, alarmed, of course, that all the prisoners are gone. But this is a different kind of situation. This is a God-led situation. The prisoners, for some reason, are following Paul's lead and everyone is still there. In our last prison narrative, Paul was let out of prison so he could go preach. But here, God says, stay. This isn't the same situation. This is a different situation. Paul stops the jailer from hurting himself. This is an amazement to the man that they are all still there. And he comes in and he asks the most important question any of us can ask. Sirs, what must I do? To be saved. Do you see that he uses the title of respect? Do you see that the authority gets flipped here? In this passage, there's a lot of conversation about power being used the wrong way with the owners and the magistrates. Here, the jailer, who actually has power over the apostles, understands that he's in the presence of those who know God. And he defers completely to them. Paul tells them, trust in Jesus. And he spends the rest of the night telling him what that means. Water is brought in for cleansing of sins and bodily wounds. God is there. And we see at the end of the day that God used hardship and real faith to lead someone and his whole household to himself. Had the missionaries not been in jail, had the jailer not been able to see them in action and see their faith and their character in the spirit of God, this wouldn't have happened. It had to happen after the exorcism and after the beatings. And then Paul and Silas were able to do a huge eternal thing for the Lord to save souls for Jesus. That was their mission. It just happened very differently than they thought. Paul could have started his day at the jailer. God could have told him, hey, yeah, you're going to like meet this jailer guy. Paul could have gone directly there. But there would have been no response. He would have been like, who are you? What are you talking about? Get away from me. The jailer probably started his day that morning thinking it was going to go in a certain way, never thinking that this was going to be the day that he was going to meet the Lord. How do you allow God to lead you as you live out your days? How do you depend and trust as you surrender to him as one of his followers? Are you ready for the next unbelievable day that God has for you? on your journey with him. For that day will have eternal consequences for him, just like every day you live. Let's pray.